Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. We are working through the book of Genesis. We're several weeks in, 33 to be exact. And what we like to do uh, as a regular practice is just work through books of the Bible, believing that we have special revelation from God. This, this word is where we can be sure that God has spoken to us. This has the ultimate authority over our lives, our thoughts, our intuitions, our feelings, our dreams, whatever. All of them are subservient. They sit under God's word. This is, this is the final say in everything that we are and everything that we do. And so we believe that all of it also is inspired, every last word of it. Uh, and so we work through a passage, work through chapters, work through books of the Bible, because we believe that everything you hear, even a chapter like 25 in the book of Genesis, has benefit for, for reproof, for correction and error, for training in righteousness, that the people of God, that the man of God might be fully equipped. And so we work through books of the Bible. So we're in Genesis 25 this morning. Um, let's jump straight to verse uh, 19. I'm not sure what Tony had down there if we don't have anything. So Genesis 20, get your copy of God's word out if you have it. If you don't, get your phone out and look at it there. But this is Genesis chapter 25. I'll read verses 19 through the end of the passage. It says this, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, and of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, and so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand, holding Esau's heel. So his name was Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Grass withers, 
flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. So, again, what I already kind of talked about, we, we are in Genesis, and we have to ask this question. Maybe you ask this question. I ask this question from time to time. Why in the world are we going through Genesis? There are so many places to be in. There are so many books of the Bible to get into. Why in Genesis? Why work through books of the Bible like this? Why? What, 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 how is this passage today really supposed to help me? Why Genesis? Well, we are um, awash today in, in pragmatism. Uh, basically, the question that we are asking of everything that we want to learn is, is will this work for me? What works for me? And, and the main idea or the main thing that we bow down to is if it works for you, then you should do it. And it doesn't matter to anybody else if it works for you. That's pragmatism. That's the philosophy that basically is just, if it's practical, if it works, then do it. I mean, no matter how uh, ridiculous it may be, how ridiculous the scenario may be, if it works, then that's, it's practical, it's pragmatic. That must mean it's good. That is the final deciding question for so many things, for so many issues in our life. For instance, we might say pragmatism would bow down to, does Jesus' message of love your neighbor, does that work for you? Love God, love each other. Oh, I like the sound of that. That works. We should be nice to each other. I will take that. That's practical. I like that. Let's, let's, let's take that. Does the message of Jesus' wrath and judgment upon uh, unbelievers and the sinful people, the sinful. Is that, does that work for you that God, that Jesus actually has wrath against sin, that God has wrath against sin? Uh, that doesn't really resonate with me, you know? And so some people will say, it's not very practical. How is that helpful to me? I'm going to kind of jettison. That's fine, you know, because we're all prag, it's not fine. I'm being facetious. That's not fine. But this is the philosophy that we live with of pragmatism. Basically, if it works, it's good. I uh, have a friend that we share podcasts back and forth, and he's an unbeliever, but he knows I'm a Christian. And so he'll, he shared one a podcast that we like. I've listened to quite a bit. And it's a, I don't know, an entrepreneur-like sort of leadership guy. Um, I'm not going to recommend the podcast. So I'm not going to say it. But you, you can, and, and, and he thought, he had listened to it, and he shared it to with me. He said, I think you'll really find this one interesting because he interviewed another man who's another sort of like leader, whatever type, um, and he had, he was a Christian. And so he just made the connection. Oh, you're, he's a Christian. You're a Christian. You're going to like to hear about him. Well, then I go through the interview and I find out that this guy found religion very practical because it gave you a sense of community. And so because, because he, it was a provided set of people to be around. And so it was very pragmatic. Community is good. Believe it or not, we believe as part of the Imago Dei that God did make us for community in his image. God himself being a trinity, he made us in his image. We are made when Adam says to, when God says to Adam, it's not good for man to be alone, right? Way back in Genesis 1, and he, he makes Eve there to be with Adam. That not only is that for husband and wife, but there's a general sense that we are made for family, we are made for community. And so, so that's a truth that he saw in religion. He thought, well, we all need community. And so church is a good place to get it. It's very pragmatic. I'll go to church. I'll become a Christian. And then a lot of them, the mindsets of like knowing that life goes up and down. Well, Christianity has a thousands, 2,000 year old tradition. And you go further into the Old Testament all the way to Genesis. Christianity has very firm foundations. They're ancient. 
you know, that you're not just kind of going with the winds of change. You're founded on something really ancient. People have been doing this for a long time. So he found it very practical. And I find it, this is strong, I find it disgusting. <laughs> because Christianity is not about being pragmatic. Like, if this works for you, then we're glad you're here. And if it doesn't, then, you know, the pragmatism, the practical question is not the question that we're asking. The question we are asking that is of primary importance is, is this true? Is this real? Did God make the heavens and the earth? Did God set all of this in motion? And is God working all of these things towards their appointed end? Did God put on flesh, come to earth as a man, live the righteous life that everyone was commanded to live, but we all failed to do? Did God put on flesh and then take the form of a servant, suffer on a cross for the sins of mankind so that everyone who trusted in him could be forgiven of their sin, made righteous in God's sight, reconciled to him, given eternal life? Did that God then raise from the dead in proof of the truth of what he claimed? These are the important, we, we, we believe Christianity and what we want to create here at Missio is not a church that just works for you, but a church that proclaims the truth. We, that that's what, we're, that's what we're grounded upon. It's not just do I find this with enough self-help, pragmatic steps for me right now. Is this true? Because there is a firm belief that what is actually most pragmatic, what is actually most practical for you in the real sense, in the long term, is the truth. Is who God really is. Is what Jesus is actually doing. Is how God is going to wrap this whole thing up. The question we've got to deal with is what is true. And so there's a major rewiring that must happen in our brains. There's a major rewiring that must happen in our hearts and our minds as we come to Jesus. We are not naturally centered around our Creator and Lord. We read Genesis as we go through it, right? We have creation. It's wonderful. God makes Adam. God makes Eve. There's all the animals around. He says it's very good. But that is not the end of the story, right? We go to Genesis 3 and we read about the fall of man. And mankind has been plunged into sin and rebellion. And that now as a result of that fall, and you can kind of make sense when you look around, everyone is bent towards their own destruction, really, and rebellion running away from God. And the only service given to God really is one that they, we think will help ourselves in our natural state. We might give God lip service if we think that ultimately he'll do what we want him to do. We're very pragmatic. So we have to have our brains rewired. There is something far greater going on than just our little myopic, our little self-centered worlds. And this is where Genesis can help us. It's going to force us to take our eyes off of our immediate lives, off of our immediate problems, off of our immediate needs to see there is something far grander going on in the world than just your story. And your story is important and we care about, we all care about all of our stories. They're not insignificant, but they all come in the context of some great grand thing that God is doing. And we have to see, we have to put those in the right perspective. What we are tempted to do as fallen creatures is to take God's story and say, oh, that's cute. Maybe I can fit that into a part of my great story. And that's upside down. And Genesis is going to pull us out of that sort of thinking. There are a couple of errors 
that happen to us if we refuse to lift our eyes from our small lives. The first error is that we begin to think everything really is about us. We begin to think that everything is about us, and that produces in us arrogance, pride. It produces in us anger when others don't recognize how amazing I am and how that they make decisions not based off of me. How dare they? They didn't think of me first. It, it produces all sorts of anger and resentment, entitlement. How dare not everyone in the world organize their life around me? You're, because we have things upside down. It produces entitlement, anger, pride, arrogance. And the second problem that it produces is that we begin to then think everything is actually up to us. This is where the crushing anxiety that our, that our culture is struggling with is because when you flip that script and you put God's stories down here and my story is really big, it's all up to you to make this story great. And so when you fail and when you fall short and when you mess up and when you sin, which you will do, where's the story going to go now? When, 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 my, when I was so sure my life was going to go this direction and then catastrophic activities happen in my life, sickness, death, whatever it may be, and life takes a total U-turn never to go that way again, if, if our lives aren't categorized correctly, that becomes all-consuming and crushing. And, and terrifying. And so Genesis helps us raise our eyes off of our lives to something bigger that God is doing. Who is this big God then? This is a God who accomplishes his purposes. Genesis 25 is this interesting transition chapter. There's like four different sections to this chapter. So as I'm talking with Jim, like, what do you do? Like, what do you emphasize in this chapter? Because it's just, there's, there's four big movements. We have the death of Abraham, right? We have the Toledot or the generations of Ishmael. Then we have the generations of Isaac, the birth of Esau and Jacob, and then Esau selling his birthright. And we're going to cram all that into one sermon and be done before noon, okay? <laughs> and so what, what in the world is the big idea? Well, God is at work accomplishing his purposes. He is doing, through every circumstance of this ebb and flow of life, God works perfectly towards his appointed end. He does. We may think of more obvious ways we'd want God to work, and in fact, there's parts of that in this narrative. Like, well, this is the obvious way God should do this. And then he does it his own way. And we think, well, here's the obvious answer. And, and this, we think that's a, we would never go that way. And then God goes that way. And, and, and all along, he is proving his ability to work his perfect good purposes. He is the one who works as he sees fit, and no one can prevent him. So as I said, this is a major transition chapter. For the last 12 chapters of Genesis, we've looked and thought about one guy. Right? Primarily. I mean, Lot's been in there quite a bit, too. I mean, so other characters. But primarily, we're talking about Abraham. And if you look here, the start of chapter 25, Abraham has another wife, lots of other kids. And then in verse 7, these are the days of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered up to his people. Side note, 
something really interesting in that language there, that there is an understanding of a life after this death. This isn't gathered up to his people. Abraham's body didn't go back to Ur. It's not his body. They bury his body, but Abraham is gathered up to his people. There's some understanding of life out beyond this life right here. Abraham is gathered up to his people. But so all of this going on, and, and, and then now we've been thinking about Abraham for you know, 13 chapters, and now Abraham is dying. So what is next? Where are we going next? It's sad to see him go, startling even if, if you were coming new into this narrative, you've gotten used to Abraham. You've gotten used to him messing up. You've gotten used to him doing all right. You know, and, and that's, this is the, and all these promises, all this covenants have come to Abraham. You know, all of these amazing events, promises from God have come to him. We've become comfortable with Abraham. And it's, you could almost think, all right, let's ride this thing out. Abraham is the man. I mean, he's chosen by God, called out, and he's given these promises. This is great. This is how God's going to work. And then what happens? Abraham dies. It's not Abraham. This story is not about Abraham. As, as central and as amazing as Abraham is, it is not about him. He dies. So often we make heroes out of the characters of the Bible. Make a hero out of Noah. Make a hero out of Abraham. Will you want to make heroes of all sorts of, make a hero of David. Make a hero of all sorts of characters. The apostles, they all die. There's one hero of the Bible. God is the hero of the Bible. Jesus is the hero of the Bible. It is not Isaac who's coming along. It's not, it's not Abel, you're right? I mean, Eve gives birth to the son and she says, from man I have gotten a man. And here's this seed of the woman we've been waiting for since Genesis 3.15. And then he's killed by Cain. Oh, I guess it's not Abel. And God does this over and over throughout Genesis, throughout the narrative of Scripture, really, of raising up these great figures, oftentimes great men in their own right, and women in their own right. And then they die. Because the hero of Scripture, the hero of the story, is God. <laughs> he is the main character. He is the hero. He is this one the story is about. And it is really important for us to get that. that I know that's a Sunday school like, I mean, we, might, we would sit in Sunday school, but maybe some of us wouldn't hurt for us to sit in some Sunday school and realize this big idea. This is all about him. He's the main character. He's the hero. He's the one who works his purposes. And we live in his world. It's his world and we're just living in it. I mean, that's, that's the reality of Scripture. So as we look at the text, and there's a pretty obvious organization. We won't go through all of it, but if, you've got your, if you have a copy out here, you can just see Abraham dies. And then there's this verse 12, this interesting, these are the generations of Ishmael. We see in verse 11 that God specifically chooses Isaac. Even though there is Ishmael, and even though we find out from this other wife, Keturah, there are lots of other sons of Abraham, Isaac is the one through whom the promise goes. It's reduced down to an individual. That's interesting. We want to keep, we want to mark that, think about that. God's promise is flowing down through an individual, flowing down through an individual. It goes down to Isaac. It goes down to Jacob. It goes down to Judah. It goes, and, and it gets narrowed down. It's always kind of coming back to a central figure until finally it all culminates into, since we're pretending we're in Sunday school, it culminates into, what's always a good answer at Sunday school? Jesus. It culminates into one figure, Jesus 
through whom all the blessings flow into the world. So that's really interesting, going down to this one individual. But Isaac recognizes blessed. We see this, uh, this, these generations of Ishmael. Interestingly, that is a fulfillment of Genesis 17:20, where the word comes, God says that I'll, I'll make uh, Ishmael the king of 12 nations, and there's 12 descendants kind of listed here in the generations of Ishmael. Just side note, that's kind of interesting. These chapter headings of these are the generations of Ishmael. Then verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac. That's kind of just flying through all of this. So while there are a couple of stories here about Isaac, really, or about, yeah, about Isaac, really this begins to be focused on Esau and Jacob. And for the next 10 chapters, we're going to be talking about this life of this war of Esau and Jacob, Isaac's children. He's going to show up here and there, but really this next 10 chapters is going to start focusing on Jacob in particular. And then when we get to the next section, which are the generations of Jacob, it actually focuses more on his kids and primarily Joseph. And so you kind of see, even though it's the, the generations of Isaac, it's going to be a lot about Jacob. And even though it's the generations of Jacob, of, of, Ish, of Israel, it's going to be about Joseph. So it's interesting. This is where we're going to head into now in the next several weeks. Uh, we'll take a break for Advent and stuff like that. But we'll be talking about Jacob. And there are, this describes some uh, major factors in, in this transition. We have to solve who's going to be the promised seed of Isaac. Where is this going to go to? There's this continued drama. Who's the figure that God is going to work through? The drama of Genesis 3.15. Who's the seed? Who's it going to be? And there are many moments you think you have it figured out. We have a way that we think it makes sense. And then God goes his own way. We first see Esau. Well, let's, let's talk first about the problem uh, that is incredible. We see this return issue in verse 21 of Genesis 25. Isaac, Jim dealt with this last week. Rebecca, the servant, is sent to go get a wife for Isaac, and she comes back, and Isaac has, Rebecca is brought to him, and they, they get married. Isaac, at this point, is 40 years old, and so he's, he's getting married late in this culture specifically, but getting married late at 40, and then we find in verse 21 that Isaac prays to the Lord for his wife because Rebecca is barren. This, this issue comes up again. Remember Sarah and Abraham struggle for years and years and decades because Sarah is not going to have a child. She's barren. And the promises have come to Abraham. I'm going to bless the world through your offspring and his wife can't have children. And then God miraculously has Sarah give birth to a son at 90, which is miraculous. And Abraham fathers him at 100. And this is a this, and it's God showing His strength to work His purposes. God does what He wants to do, and then here we have it again. Isaac marries Rebecca. He marries late at forty. We don't know exactly how old she is. Likely younger. And but but, but again, the problem: she's barren. God's has blessed Isaac. He's the one the promise is going to go through, but they can't have any progeny. They don't have any descendants. There's this struggle. But Isaac, he does the righteous thing here. He doesn't go and get a concubine like Abraham did. Remember Hagar? Went through that story. He goes and he gets a concubine and has Ishmael. Isaac doesn't do this. He prays to the Lord. In contrast to Abraham, he does not take a concubine. He, he seeks the Lord. He prays and God grants his request and Rebekah conceives. But something's up. The children in the womb, she's, she knows something is wrong. There's, some, there's a 
more than a normal conflict. And you think, well, I mean, pregnancy, I've, my wife, we've had two kids, and so I've been around a, a, a conflict in a womb of, you know, feet, and if maybe you have a certain active kid, you can see him kick out, you know, like on your, on the belly. It's, it's really kind of cool and creepy. There's an alien. And, anyway, uh, <laughs> you know, but, but she realized there's something bigger going on here, and this is actually the first time in Scripture we see twins. Maybe the first time in history, I don't know, there's no record of it, that twins are born here. This isn't just a child, but twins are in the womb of Rebecca. And there's only one other time this happens later on in Genesis 38. You will see another set of twins. But here, Rebecca's like, something's not right. Like, I know there's active babies, and then there's like, I got extra feet and hands here or something. And they're, they're wrestling it out. There's something going on here. And so there are these twins. And, and so she seeks the Lord as well. Verse 22, she inquires of the Lord, why is this happening to me? And God says to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. Well, that's, that's siblings, one stronger than the other. And, and actually you would think, because we have this, this still goes on today. I mean, this is like legally, you know, the oldest usually has the, the rights, the primogenitor. They're the, the firstborn has a certain special legal class. They're the stronger one. But God says, one shall be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. There's this weird flip of what you think would happen that the older is going to rule because they're the oldest child. They're the one that's going to be in charge, but God doesn't do that. He says, actually, what's going to happen is the, I'm going to, he's like basically saying, I'm going to do it my way. And I'm going to accomplish my purposes the way I want to do it, and I'm going to accomplish them. The younger is actually going to serve the older. And so this story happens, a very famous story, right? The Esau comes out all red, covered in hair. I, I mean, use whatever imagination, you know, like a, a Bigfoot, a Sasquatch. I don't know. It comes out covered in red hair. Uh, and it's just, it's just already, not just a head of hair, comes out covered in red hair. They comes out red, his body, all his body, like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau, has familiarity with, with the word red there. And then Jacob comes out and he's holding the heel of his brother Esau. So Jacob is kind of a play on words there, supplanter or heel grabber or trickster. Like as though you're going to trip someone, you're going to grab their heel and, and pull them back. You're, 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 getting the, you're trying to get the, the feet out from underneath them. You're a supplanter, a trickster. This is Jacob's name because he's a heel clutcher. He's holding on to Esau's heel. And all of this is prophetic about what the relationship is going to be like. Because they grow up. Esau is a man of the field, hunter, catches lots of game. He's a wild man, they say. He's out, he's out just having a good time, in the, in the, in, in, not in the tents, but out in the field. And Jacob, in contrast, is a civilized man. He lives among the tents. He's more diplomatic. He has more conversations. He's not out howling at the moon, killing wild game. He's talking to people. He's, he's civilized. He lives among the tents. And so Esau becomes the favorite of his father, Isaac, because he loves to eat wild game. I don't know why. That's... Parents don't pick favorites. It's just a bad idea. But Isaac does, and he picks Jacob or picks I, uh, picks Esau as did I say Jacob? Isaac picks Esau as his favorite because he likes wild game. But e, but Jacob is the favorite of his mother. So that's really the birth, and then the, this ending section here. Esau sells it because this conflict is going to continue to happen. And we see in verse twenty nine. We read it this morning. 
this really interesting story of Esau despising his birthright because he is, by legal definitions, by, by all practical sense in that culture, he's the one who's going to inherit the promises of God, essentially, coming down from Abraham, down to Isaac, down to the oldest son. Esau's got the birthright. He's going to have the land. He's going to have the possessions. He's, he's going to have the, the, all, of, all the promises from God are, are to come down to Esau, and Esau despises it. He, he comes in hungry from hunting wild game. Jacob, maybe smartly, like he knows his, knows his brother loves to eat food or something. He's got a real spicy, great meal cooked up. So that when his brother comes in famished, he's going to want to eat it. And he says, hey, the, it, the, the play is, is essentially that though Esau is this great hunter, he comes back to the tents and finds himself the one hunted. And Jacob's kind of got his eyes set on Esau a little bit, and he's offering him soup. And, 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 and then says, I will give you a bowl of this soup if you'll just give me your birthright. And Esau sees no problem with that. It's the, the text is very stark that he cares so little about this birthright, cares so little about the, the promises of God coming down to his forefathers that he's like, he's like, yeah, I'll sell it. Eats the soup, gets up and walks out. Doesn't even, just goes on with his day. No big deal. Despises his birthright. So what do we see here? God is the one who does the saving. God is the one who works his purposes. Abraham is dead. Ishmael and the other sons of Abraham, they've been sent to live in other regions. Esau and Jacob have been conceived, and God has declared that it is the older who will serve the younger. Why will it be this way? To prove that it is God's purposes that stand, not ours. So flip with me to Romans chapter 9. We're going to go to a few other places. We got time this morning. Sorry, but we do. We got time to go to Romans 9. And tons of, tons of heat come from these passages, Romans 9, 10, and 11. And not always a lot of light, but we're going to just kind of look at one general idea from this narrative of, of Jacob and Esau. So this is Romans chapter 9, looking at verses 6 through 13. Uh, Speaking about God's sovereign choice, his, his election of his people, uh, Romans 9 verse 6 says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed because some of Israel had fallen away, right? He says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born. Now this is speaking of Esau and Jacob particularly. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Mine's got little dash marks around this. It says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So to try to cut through a lot of like, we could go to some really interesting theological discussions about election and Esau and Jacob. I think the big idea here is that God does what he wants to do so that his purposes might stand. Why, why uh, Esau is rejected and why Jacob is loved, Paul tells us, so that God's purpose 
of election, but God's purpose, his design is to do what he wants to do, that it would go forward. God is the one who accomplishes what he wants to do, and no one has a right to complain because it is his world. God works his purposes. So secondly, we see then that our works, neither good nor bad, are the decisive elements in the salvation of God's people. Through it all, our God works his purposes. If you wanted to go with me to Isaiah 46, just a fascinating passage. Uh, heard it referenced just yesterday and wanted to throw this in here. Isaiah chapter 46, speaking about God working his purposes because of he does what he wants to do. Isaiah chapter 46, talking, speaking about these false gods, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols are on beasts and livestock. He's talking about these, these idols, these false gods of these people. They have to be carried along on carts. All these things are, you carry and are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save themselves, but they themselves go into captivity. God goes on, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. Instead of being carried like the false gods, in the Old Testament, Bel and Nebo stoop. Instead of being carried, this God is the one who does the carrying. This God, he says, I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. God works his perfect purposes. Through all this transition of Genesis, God is still laser focused on accomplishing his purposes. It may not go the way we want it to go. And this is where it gets important for us to think about it may not go the way that we think it should go. It may not go the way that we want it to go. And I don't say that lightly. I've had plenty of things in my life that have not gone the way that I've wanted them to go. It may not go the way that we want them to go, but God is faithful to accomplish his perfect purposes for the good of his people. No matter the transition, no matter the up or down, no matter the trial, God's people find themselves carried by this God who doesn't need to be carried like the idols of the world, but he is the God who carries everything. He is the one who carries everything. It is not about our impressing of him. It is about our trust, our faith in this God who works his purposes. But we have to fight for this. Last text, just look at quickly is Hebrews 12. We've been in Hebrews 11 a lot in, in, in regards to Abraham. But it mentions Esau here in Hebrews 12, not Hebrews 11. But Esau is a cautionary tale. Hebrews 12, 14 and 16, the writer of Hebrews now going into practical application, really. Sorry, he's going into, it is in the word there as well, in the scriptures, what this looks like on the ground. He says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral, immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Esau begins to treasure the things of this world over the things of God. 
and he wants his instantaneous satisfaction. He wants his things now, and he can let everything else go. He can only focus on what is right in front of him. He has no mind for God. He has no eyes that are lifted up beyond his world and beyond his soup right now. Esau traded away the things of immense significance for momentary delights. This is us. <laughs> don't, don't, don't get in the story. Don't read the Bible like this where you say, oh, I'm, I'm glad I'm Jacob and not Esau. There's a little Esau in all of us. There's a little bit of that rejection that wants to say, you know what, I want my stuff now. I want the life that I want, I want it now. And I will trade all sorts of eternal significance if I can just have the life I want now. If I could just have things the way that I want them now, this is of primary importance to me. And we trade away things of, of great and eternal significance for things of momentary peace and goodness. Don't be, it's a cautionary tale, don't be like Esau. So, conclusion. Let's lift our eyes to Jesus, who is, we see here in Hebrews 12, the author or the starter or the instigator and the perfecter, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. What circumstances surround us that tempt us to doubt God's goodness and strength? What transitions are we going through that tempt us to doubt that God works his purposes for his people? Trust him. He will work his good purposes for his people. And again, I've said this a lot. This is huge, though. It's easily said, and yet we will spend the rest of our lifetimes drilling this down deeper and deeper as Christians into who we are, that we can trust this God, that no matter what circumstances, what transitions, what difficulties, what sorrows, what joys come our way in this life, we can trust him. When the world around you points a different way, God is trustworthy. When your plans blow apart, God is trustworthy. When the world rejects you, God is trustworthy. When the diagnosis goes against you, God is trustworthy. When you disappoint yourself, God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy. We ought to trust him. We ought to doubt our interpretation of the events around us. We cannot trust our wants and wishes as the perfect fulfillment of what God would have for us, as though we are the ultimate arbitrator of what is good and perfect for us. That is worldly folly. Fight it. Scripture tells us that godliness with contentment is great gain. We ought to not long and labor for the things of this world, but for Christ and his kingdom. So trust him. Doubt your own interpretation and labor to love God and your neighbor as you honor God and wait for him. This God who is truth, not just practically applicable, but this God who is real and true is at work fulfilling all the promises for his people. All who are trusting in him, turning from their sin and their rebellion and seeking by the spirit to live as he wills, not as their flesh wills, but as he wills, not a one of them will be disappointed on that great and final day when he returns. One day he will finally and fully bring about all his good purposes and none who are his will be disappointed on that day. Let's pray. Father, help us to trust you. Give us eyes to see you are the God who works perfectly his purposes. We can look at this event thousands of years before Jesus 
And yet here you are, so many shades of what you are ultimately going to do in sending your son to rescue your people from their sins. That God, you are a God who is working your perfect purposes. And though life involves lots of transition, death, sorrow, trials, confusion, all sorts of difficulty, times of great joy, times of great success as well, all these ups and downs. Ultimately, God, may we be a people who rest our souls, who rest our hearts, who rest our lives, not in our ability to perform our will, but in your ability to work your perfect purposes for the good of your people. And though we may not understand them all today, we know the day is coming when all will be revealed, when you will return, we will see you face to face, know you as we are known, and rejoice and, and, and lack all disappointment in the God who has saved us, made us his own, worked his purposes for our good and his glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.